So welcome to everyone. Assalamu alaikum to everyone. And it's good uh, to see some familiar faces. Just for the benefit of everyone who might potentially be listening, would it be possible for everyone to introduce themselves? Two of the uh, participants have already been on the podcast before, but just for the sake of for the sake of thoroughness, uh, is it possible for uh, each one of you just to introduce yourselves, inshallah? I'm, I'm Dr. Ziauddin Ansari. I'm the Intensive Care Specialist and Director of Intensive Care Services at Epworth. My role as an intensivist is uh, working in different hospitals, uh, including the public hospital, which is uh, Western Health. And I do work at Knox Private also, so basically keep me busy. <laughs> Um, so I've been here before, so uh, I'm trying to just help you if I can somehow, you know, just get the message across to the community. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, um, good oh, to be back again. Um, I'm Shiraz. I'm a GP working in Melbourne and regional Victoria. Um, I also work casually in emergency medicine and forensic medicine um, in Melbourne and Victoria. Good to be back with you. Welcome everybody. So I'm Dr. Shamila Panwa. So this is my first time doing a podcast of any sort. Um, so I'm a GP working in Essendon, um, and I live in the you know Hume local government area. And I do some work with um, contracting through DHS um, with the coronavirus response as well. Mashallah. Very good resumes for all three of you. Mashallah. So Dr. Shumaila has introduced herself as being in one of the hotspot areas, it seems. Yeah, that's indeed. Um, thankfully, my personal suburb wasn't locked down, but we were very much, actually, yeah, my clinic suburb also wasn't locked down, but it was um, a ring around home and work for that time. And, you know, obviously the virus won't respect those sorts of boundaries. And we use the same shopping centres as the ones in the lockdown suburb. So... Yeah, it's been fairly intense for quite some time here. Why would you say it's happening in certain areas as compared to others? Um, there's quite a few theories. I think when the link came out between hotel quarantine, I think it started to make sense then. So I did some work, you know, at the hotels when that was happening. Um, and I think, look, at least from my observation, there was a lot of security guards who are from our communities and from our areas. So it did make sense that when you know if there were breaches in that protocol and again i don't know what the inquiry is going to show but just you know if if guards from those regions are going home and they are going to their families um and if things were spreading in that way through family gatherings it was just there was no other way it could have happened it was always mm. in the northern mm. suburbs and the western suburbs one of the nerves which seems to be seems to have been stroked is that some of these areas which are hotspots, such as Dandenong, such as Hume, as you've mentioned, they are heavily Muslim. So can there be a kind of link, perhaps? My only, only my personal observation, so not through any other you know, research or insider information or anything, but like I said, it just it makes a lot of sense that if, if it's going to start somewhere, it will start with a particular community. I think we were more vulnerable because we do tend to have larger families, multi-generational families. I think also the type of work. So there's, you know, I think there was an article in the Age, if it was today or yesterday, on um, you know, the, the type of work that people are in. We're less likely in these demographics and suburbs to have jobs where we can sit and work from home. So if we're going mm. to go physically to work somewhere, um, you can imagine people in industries like um, you know, Uber or those sorts of types of jobs where you will come across, you'll be in contact with lots and lots and lots of people, potentially while infectious. And I think especially before, um, like if we think about sort of June, yeah, maybe the early weeks of June, when we're starting to get some, you know, some clusters popping up and there was no clear link. I think a lot of that, um, it won't happen to me mentality was happening. And obviously we, we've got big families as well. So not just within the household, but we've got, you know, We've got lots of cousins and aunts, and um, so I don't think it was by any accident that there was, you know, spread in the north and the western suburbs, and then down towards, you know, Traganina type of area, and then Dandenong and Hallam. So I don't think those suburbs were, you know, random in that sense. I think it, it probably reflects our behaviour and our, you know, meeting and mingling, and um, and this is how the virus spreads, unfortunately. 
Now, Dr. Shiraz, there was something we discussed much earlier in regards to a concern being amongst members of the community that the coronavirus just isn't a legitimate threat, that it's something that just isn't real. It's either manufactured as, a, you know, as they say, psychological warfare or something of the like, or it's just not a big a problem as, as other problems. Now, what would you have to say with regards to a concern such as this? Yeah, I think there are a lot of layers um, to this problem. I think some of those issues Dr. Shamela touched on as well. Um, part of it could be that mentality that um, that if, if that if I don't have the infection, if I haven't seen a family member with it, then it's probably not true. Um, so I think um, uh, in some ways people uh, need to know someone um, closely to actually believe in it. Um, it could also go back to just a general mistrust for um, for authority and governments and so forth. Um, our community is is extremely diverse. Um, it's also very sensitive towards the government. So even before the pandemic, if we go back um, to September 11th, when I was in school or when the Iraq war happened, there was a lot of um, uh, mistrust towards Western governments and, and we worry about our family back home, for example. So I think all those layers have created this level of mistrust. And so when we've got something very real like the coronavirus, um, I think it can be, uh, I think the Muslim community can be more prone to fall back into, into that narrative that of, that somebody's out to somebody's out out against us and there could be that narrative um, so i think there are a lot of layers dr zia in the previous podcast that we had uh, on this topic you shared the possibility that the coronavirus could be something which is uh, manufactured uh, as a possibility now uh, it seems that members of the community have taken you know uh, this belief to a different level altogether that if it is you know, possibly manufactured, then it can, we, we don't need to uh, abide by certain restrictions. Uh, yeah, look, I think I remember in the last uh, time when we were talking about this issue, we were talking about people, conspiracies and beliefs. And one of the conspiracy which was going along was that is being manufactured uh, in the lab. And we did talk about the possibility and all these things at that time. To be honest, up till now, we really don't have any sort of clear-cut indication where it came from. So that thing probably will not be settled for a while. So will people still be... And, and what's happening with this is giving chance to a lot of people, and especially conspiracy theorists, to come up with lots of uh, theories and there's a lot of things going on in social media which is obviously causing a bit of a problem with people trust and uh, you know distrust of uh, medical institutions and governments of sorts. It seems to me like it's going to be one of those situations like uh, as it is with JFK assassination 20 years from now 30 years from now people are going to be having their own theories and assumptions. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, I think in current environment, the whole, uh, there are a lot of people, those who believe in different things, and this is the social media at the moment where it's very easy to manufacture fake news and people, a lot of people buying it. And uh, I mean, I, I would like to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and how do they they operate and, and create all these false narratives. Uh, there's a very good book written by James Cook, who's a who's an author, and he he tried to describe the sort of people, those who who come up with these conspiracy theory and those who believe in it, and he came up uh, with a sort of short form, which is called conspire, which is C-O-N-S-P-I-R. And, and these are the traits of a conspiracy theorist. And what that means, uh, C stands for contradictory. So all these people, they have a contradictory view of uh, things. Uh, and then you have O, which means overriding suspicion of everything, whatever is going on around them. Uh, their other trait is uh, N, which is uh, nefarious intent. They all have that nefarious intent that they want to create trouble. And the other thing which is important trait for these people is S, which is something uh, 
you know, must be wrong. Uh, there's something going on in the world that must be wrong. You know, someone is doing it to us. Uh, the other, other trait is P, which is like uh, persecuted victim. They always feel like they're being victim of uh, something. Then there is I, which is uh, an, they're immune to evidence. They do not want to see the real evidence. Uh, and the last trait is uh, R, which is uh, reinterpreting randomness. So they all have a certain sort of trait in them. And if you look around the people, those who are, and when you see them on television, you can see just by their personalities that they, they look like those sort of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, in this environment, uh, it's the, you know, it's a right, right wing agenda also going on behind this scene. So it's very unfortunate and it's causing a lot of damage to the cause, uh, especially when we are fighting pandemic today, because that's creating distrust towards the authorities, especially medical uh, and obviously politicians are not helping in it. And uh, Donald Trump is an example where, uh, you know, he's basically sidelined whole CDC. So I think it will be moving forward. I think we need to consider all these things to fight back against these conspiracy theories. And I would like to say to people, those who say that uh, it's not a legitimate threat, uh, it's real. And, and the way I suppose we can negate their propaganda is by putting the real facts out there. The people, those who say, oh, I mean, I, I hear this, oh, what the big fuss about this, you know, this, how many people died so far. And surprisingly, there are people amongst us, those who are doctors, those who are GPs, those who are, and they ask me this question. And one day, one of my friends sent me this text asking, oh, how many of you have seen yourself dying in front of you? So this is sort of people, they are, you know, literate doctors. Uh, so the way we can uh, come back to them and say, look, it's a real, it's a real thing. Uh, people are dying. It's not a manufactured fake news from somewhere. And one of the things which we should be telling people is basically the case fatality rate. So if we talk to them and put these uh, facts in front of them, some people might take it, you know. Uh, so if, if I tell you a little bit about case fatality rate of uh, overall COVID-19, is uh, it's uh, it varies depending on the time when, when we are looking at it. Uh, but on an average, we say around 1.3% uh, is the fatality rate. Uh, in Italy, in the beginning, when they had big uh, pandemic happening, their fatality rate went up to 15%. So it's, it's a dynamic thing where based on the number of cases you have the fatality if you have less testing your fatality rate will be high but then when you do more uh, denominator goes up your uh, fatality rate goes down uh, so if you say there are you know one million people uh, get infection and if you take 1.37 percent of that there are a lot of people those who will die and if i give you current Australian data, we have 239 deaths out of 21,000 cases. So it's around 2% fatality rate. So it's real. And if, if we don't do all these majors where we're trying to do prevention, preventive majors, then we will be in big trouble. I think that we've the reason why our fatality rates haven't reached that level, as is the case with Italy, because we've managed it well? Uh, or is it yeah, something else? Yeah, there are a few factors in there. Uh, one is obviously we haven't been overwhelmed. If you compare Italy, what was happening when the fatality rate was 20%, the hospitals were overwhelmed, that, that particular region, Lombardo region. Uh, so we didn't have that. Uh, so, and we, the reason we didn't have that, the community spread in the beginning wasn't that high. Now this time is a different scenario because this time we have more community spread and that's why more people dying now than the first time in March. Because in March, most of the cases we were seeing, they were all came from overseas uh, and, and then there was community spread was very low. 
the growth factor at that time was low. Uh, and that's why we didn't see many of that. Now, this time, the, the, the virus is in the community. Uh, and that's why we are seeing the numbers going up. Uh, the deaths we are seeing still, luckily, uh, the most of the deaths recently are seeing last few days. It's unfortunate, but it's elderly people, those who, who are dying. And, and it's again, the people, those who say it's not legitimate, this is where, you know, uh, it's a young person who will take it to the nursing home who's working there and then kill all these elderly people. So we should be careful uh, when, when people say this. I, I think the only way we can fight this or negate these sort of uh, conspiracies by talking to those people and putting the facts out there. Dr. Shmaila, I understand you were trying to say something with regards to conspiracy theories. Yeah, I just want to add, like, especially for our community where there is so much suspicion, on the topic of where the virus came from, right now, it's almost completely irrelevant to worry about these things. It doesn't matter. I, honestly, I don't care if it was in a, a wet market in China, if it was some lab, if it was a you know, chemical warfare. It is right now, for us, at least in Melbourne, it is completely and utterly irrelevant to worry about this. Our focus, I think most of us will feel that our focus is getting our, our freedoms back and getting lives back to normal. How the virus was created, it doesn't change how it's being passed on. And if we don't focus on how it's being passed on, then we're going to be stuck in this situation for, you know, for a very long time. So it's all on our behaviour now to try and get it back under control. When, you know, when things settle, you can have as many investigations as you like. But right now, this, you know, we shouldn't, even even um, medically, I think Dr. Shiraz would agree with me that we, you know, it almost feels like we're wasting a lot of time in trying to address these issues when we could be looking at ways to keep ourselves safe now. We're, we're in the fire. It doesn't matter who lit it. We need to get out of it now. The argument from these people mainly seems to be that if it is manufactured or man-made, then we should be challenging the government on this particular point so that they, they can just provide the cure and we can just be, you know, live our lives as usual, basically. Well, I mean, there's people who spend their whole lives studying viruses. I haven't spent my life studying viruses. I won't give you know, an answer to those things. And the ones who have that knowledge are absolutely working on this. Um, mm. you know, we're a big part of finding treatment for disease is working out where it's come from. So let those people handle that just like they handle, you know, all other diseases that we're faced with as mm. well. But right now having this sort of sense of denialism that because it's manufactured, it can't harm me or it can't hurt my grandma is, you know, it's not a useful ideology to have right now. It's a very other. good point that you've raised. Uh, and that is that a lot of the, experts or conspiracy theorists that are coming out of the woodwork, they seem to be individuals that have no medical background behind them or, you know, no uh, real speciality when it comes to viruses or something of the like. It's, it's amazing how they seem to have a very, uh, you know, they've figured it out while everyone else is pretty much lost in this, uh, this whole pandemic. Shiraz, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to um, comment on what you actually just said. Um, I think a lot of people in our community, as it is, don't really um, always trust Western medicine. Um, and uh, a lot of members in our community, they, they go to the naturopaths or homeopathy. Um, for example, in India, homeopathy and alternative medicine is so, uh, is so popular. So there, there was a general mistrust for Western medicine, as it is, before the pandemic. Um, and so now that we've got the pandemic and all the experts are, are giving their information, um, again, there's a mistrust for these experts and epidemiologists um, who actually have knowledge in this area, and people are uh, taking it upon themselves to to become the experts, I guess. Uh, Doctor Azia, I think you were trying to say something. Uh, no, I was, I was just trying to say. I was just trying to say. I think we have to be careful labeling ourselves as the spreaders or the main main uh, community who is involved in this. I probably will. Yes, it's, it's the main areas are where the you know majority of Muslim population is. I will say all these uh, areas, there's a lot of uh, newly migrant population there. There are Indians, there are, uh, you know, other, other communities, Pakistanis. So it's not just the Muslim. And I think we should be careful going out and say how our community is doing this and we are 
I think we are blaming ourselves. And, and if we do that, mm. then there are a lot of people looking at it. Uh, I mean, I give you an example in India, what happened, the Muslims, uh, Jamaatis, and all these people being blamed as, uh, you know, the one who's doing these spreading things. Uh, so I will be a bit careful. When, uh, so I care when we are discussing about our community, but putting ourselves out there saying we are the one who's, I think there are a lot of Indian communities, those who are not Muslims, those who have the same views. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hindus, they're non-Muslims. Is this everybody? I think uh, my personal view is uh, in these areas, especially those newly migrant communities, there is lack of uh, not following the directions, not following the rules. I have my personal experience with people those who are even during Eid al-Azad, they did parties. Uh, so it's a lack of total you know, disregard towards the rules. Uh, and, and this is where we are today because people are not following the direction, not following the rules. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Uh, so I thank you for noting that for us all. One of the things that we can further ask about this particular topic is the lockdown itself. Uh, obviously, we're going through one in Victoria at the moment. And one of the side effects of this lockdown is obviously depression, you know, people, you know, not able to go out and so forth, enjoy as they previously did. And obviously, job loss as well. Some of people have actually lost their jobs or their work has been minimized as a result. Would it be possible to argue that whilst we may end up saving a few lives, that we might even lose others in cases such as suicide, for example? I think we are seeing this a lot in general practice. I don't think there is there would be a GP anywhere in Melbourne that would not be seeing, you know, dare I say, exponential rise in mental health presentations. We knew mental health was an issue before this pandemic. Um, but I think what's alarming, what's alarming for me personally is not it's not the people who I thought would be vulnerable that are being affected now. It's people who I've I've known for years and have never had any mental health issues or who have been seemingly quite resilient or quite well supported. So that, that issue is absolutely there. And we know we need, you know, as a community, we need to find ways as a, as a, you know, not just as a Muslim community, but just as people um, to find ways to lift each other and to, you know, and to find joys in things that we do still have. But I think putting the argument that it would have been better to have let things run and allow the most vulnerable in our society to merely get sick and die is a really difficult argument. I mean, you can't put a price on the, the life of your grandparent or your parent or your, you know, your sibling who's, you know, had a, a lung transplant or something like that, you know. That how I don't see how as a society we could accept the argument that the weak should just die while we can go out and earn money. So the argument of uh, Gigi Foster, I'm not sure if you've heard of her. Uh, She was uh, an economist that uh, recently came on Q&A. Her solution has been somewhat controversial in that she's arguing that uh, we should sacrifice the lives of, uh, you know, these elderly people and so forth. Because if we do not do that, we'll lose other people in the process, such as, you know, these people who have lost their jobs, you know, the economy will suffer and people will continue to feel depressed as a result. You know, her argument is that if we do not lose in this way, we will lose in another way. What would you say uh, with a concern such as that? Uh, I will respond to that, Fulkan. Look, I can see her argument. But there is an example in the world who has taken that approach, and that's Sweden. Okay, uh, Sweden has taken that approach, and they said that okay, we, we're going to take this approach. We'll let, we will try to protect the elderly, vulnerable group, and we keep business as usual. So what ended up happening, and and the idea was that. Uh, that more people will get infection and they will have herd immunity. And I think that was, that was the idea behind doing this way. So you protect the vulnerable and let the virus run amongst the community. Uh, but what, what happened in the end? So it's a very good example in front of us. So, so they end up actually losing both. Uh, they end up having more deaths per capita 
and they end up having, uh, they're, they're doing worse in economic terms also. So they were not immune. Their economy wasn't immune to what happened. So I don't buy that argument that, you know, let the people die. And, and, and the other argument is we protect the elderly or vulnerable. You know, everybody is vulnerable. You know, no one can say I'm not vulnerable. I'm sitting talking to you, I'm vulnerable. Uh, so I think that argument doesn't really hold uh, because, as I said before, uh, you know, they were the young people, those who went working in nursing home, or it might be a young kid who's uh, giving a hug to their grandmother or grandfather. Uh, so that argument really, you can't really protect that way when you have something which is so virulent in the community. Uh, and uh, yes, Elderly people, if you look at the demography and the risk of death, yes, elderly people, they have higher risk of death. So you can say, okay, this is the group which is more vulnerable. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a false sort of argument where you, uh, you just protect them and, and keep business as usual. I, I don't think we would have been better off, to be honest. And the sad reality is that some some young people can, can die as well. I think it's just in the past week, there were two or three doctors who were in ICU in Melbourne, um, including one emergency doctor and I think two GPs. Uh, fortunately, I haven't heard of any deaths, but but that's a very serious um, worst case scenario for healthcare workers, young doctors and young people to end up in ICU and, and, and to die. This Yes, we mm. have two deaths uh, for those who are 30 year old. So it's not like young will not die, they will die. Mm. If it's mm. bad. We just can't do anything. The time comes when we just pull out because we cannot do anything. Okay, Dr. Shiraz and Dr. Shmaila. Uh, sorry, Dr. Shmaila, you have something to say? Sorry, I was going to say that we, you know, we, we do focus a lot on death, but death is just you know one ex extreme endpoint of what can happen with this virus. We're still only learning about the disability that can come with it as well. So run, letting it run rampant in society and then ending up with hordes of people who may have issues such as chronic fatigue going to cause depression as well you know chronic fatigue we've seen you know um, numerous heart complications lung complications so this is not uh, this is not a it's not a cold and it's not a flu it's not a safe disease that you just take your chances with yeah i have a mm. friend who um who contracted the virus um i think last month and he's still recovering from the fatigue he's still not quite back to normal i mean he's He's out of his quarantine, but still feels tired. And, and we, there's, there are some things we don't mm. know about this virus still, the long-term complication on the lungs, on the brain, um, on the blood vessels. I mean, we hear that people seem to have different um, uh, reactions towards the disease itself. Some of them seem to struggle through it. Some of them seem to say that, oh, it's nothing. It was nothing. Like, you hear these stories. Uh, obviously, I, up until this point, I don't really know anyone uh, on a personal level that has had uh, COVID-19. But you hear stories through uh, you through other people, uh, so that seems to be the case at the moment. Uh, but the question that I wanted to ask Dr. Shiraz and Dr. Shumaila, given that they are GPs, is if they actually think that there needs to be greater funding on psychological health services uh, during the pandemic as well as after, because it seems like this is a huge um, issue that has come out of all of this lockdown and all of this talk of the disease spreading and so forth. Yeah, most definitely. And um, Greg Hunt um, just recently announced further funding of, of some millions of dollars towards um, towards mental health, because that's going to be the, the second wave, I guess, after um, uh, after the coronavirus itself. Um, and we're already seeing the effects of that, as Dr. Shamela said. Um, and the other thing is, um, is the increased mental health care plan sessions that the government is providing now for Victorians. So normally, um, uh, if a person has a mental health diagnosis, they're eligible for up to 10 um, psychological sessions at a reduced cost um, by the government in a, in a given year. But now you can have an extra 10 sessions. They can have up to 20 sessions in a year. Um, so there is some funding that is being provided, but, um, but it's still not enough. Um, and there are some GPs that, that aren't happy that the government is just not doing enough to support GPs um, uh, in the funding because we're going to be seeing so much mental health. So if, if the government actually provides some funding for us to be able to do some, some therapy, some, some cognitive behavioral therapy and so forth, then we could better support our patients. So yeah, but it's a, it's a big space to, to be filled. I think Dr. Shamela can add, can, can add more than I can. Oh, look, absolutely. Um, and so I think one, we've, there's a couple of issues. One is the issue of accessing psychologists. 
that it's 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 not difficult for us in in general practice to to you know identify mental health issues to write mental health care plans to do you know very well intentioned referrals for appropriate psychological therapy. Um, the psychologists are, are inundated as well. We we don't we don't have a hundred new psychologists available that can just you know come on board. So I think it moves to um, you know we've had the example where we can send you know personnel like doctors, nurses, contact tracers, ADF. We need psychologists as well, and not just um, any psychologists, but Medicare-funded, appropriately funded psychologists. Um, so in my suburb of Essendon, I hadn't come across many who, you know, in a more sort of affluent suburb, they, if I needed to refer to psychology, most people could still pay for a private psychologist. They would have the rebate, but there usually wasn't an issue with the, you know, $100 out of pocket per session. Now, those people are, are on job seeker. They're on job keeper payments. They cannot fund, and especially the people are needing more intensive psychology. Those who may have been seeing their psychologist once a month, once every two months, are now, you know, recommended to be seeing them weekly and are having to stretch out sessions. So having extra funding for programs like Care in Mind, you know, better access to care. So one is psychologist, the other one, other one is psychiatrist. You know, as far back as maybe it was April or May, they were talking about a two-month wait to see any psychiatrist, the next available, who may not necessarily be the most appropriate for um, you know, for the condition that you're referring for. So I dread the thought of the next time I need to refer to psychiatrists because they're just, they're not there. We, they're full. They're, their books are closed with the existing patients. We don't have extra psychiatrists. So, you know, expanding telehealth to allow psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, in other locations to assist with our cohort will be very helpful. And, and with that, to not suddenly turn the tap off of funding to say, I can be your psychologist while you're in a six-week lockdown, but after that, I can't. So this is a big limiter to even, you know, my referring um, patients to say, you know, fabulous psychologists in, in Sydney who I know are appropriate. But the fear is, is that once, once our lockdowns are done, the patients will not be able to access Medicare funding. It's a very big issue that we deal with every day. It appears as though this whole issue of the pandemic and lockdown, it's going to be an issue which will be lasting for many years to come. Uh, I've got a question for Dr. Zia. Given that the infection rate has been so high, is it possible to really say that there's a possibility that we will succeed in lowering the rate of infection? Have, yeah. have we already lost? No, 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 no. There's always a possibility, you know. We should always be uh, positive. So uh, I don't think it's all lost. Uh, uh, my my personal view is that obviously lockdowns, isolations, and extreme measures they do work, and that's all we have at the moment. But long term, you just can't be in lockdown forever. Uh, so we need to have a sort of strategy where uh, when we come out or we we come out of stage four to stage three, uh, people need to understand this and when now i will talk about our community here uh, and we as a community leaders and and the other religious leader have this responsibility on them that they educate their own community people they educate their uh, most people those who are coming there and and tell them that how important it is to follow the, you know, all these directions which are there from DHS or other medical professionals telling them. Uh, because if we do that, then obviously we'll be able to contain. I, my feeling is we won't be able to eradicate this. You know, there was some thought in the beginning that we are going to eradicate, but I don't think that's going to happen. Even the government policy now is containment rather than eradication. I think we did talk about that in our last uh, podcast that how long it's going to take to eradicate. Uh, but seeing this, even that's when we were young and naive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, has evolved so much since then. Modeling, <laughs> you know, they were all based on modeling. You know, even today they're talking. They all their policies are based on modeling and modelings are just modeling basically you know they cannot be true all the time but uh, even if we take a containment approach and and 
the whole idea of containing the number is so the health system doesn't get overwhelmed. And I can tell you, I, I get concerned seeing the healthcare worker infections uh, in Australia at the moment is very, very high. We have around uh, 1,100 sort of healthcare workers, those who, who got infection. Now, I saw the data from the government and the last month data they have uh, released is they're saying only 11% of healthcare workers have contacted the disease at work. So that is, uh, again, I'm not 100% sure about that data, but that's what data suggests, that majority of the people we are seeing positive amongst the healthcare workers, they have contracted that outside the workplace. The, the thing which uh, is concerning is the number, uh, the way the number is increasing. And, and the other effect I have, I personally, I had this, that two of my residents have to go in isolation for two weeks because they were working in a ward where one patient got tested and got positive, though they have been followed. Uh, there are two intensives being followed uh, at Geelong Airport. So, and that is the real problem because we're going to have problem with the workforce. And if we lose 30% of our workforce, we're in trouble. So we didn't have, we only have maximum 41 cases in intensive care and uh, in the ward also. And we are already feeling like we are stressed and we are overwhelmed. Imagine if we have thousand patients coming a day, like happened in UK and and uh, New York and Italy. There's no way the Australian system can cope with it. So the whole idea of containing the number is so uh, you have manageable numbers so we can look after people. And that's one of the reasons uh, I tell you the Australian mortality is looking really, really good. I think we are one of the best at the moment in the world. So our ICU mortality in people, those who are ventilated, only 12.2%. Uh, overall mortality is around 18%, which is, you know, in comparison to 67% in New York or London, again, 63% London. Uh, our mortality overall in ICU is around 14%. And the people, those who were ventilated, is 18%, which is really good. And the reason we have done this because uh, we, we didn't have, uh, you know, 200 patients to look after. So it's important and this, this containment uh, is very, very important. So we, we keep the number down. Mm. We've had the lowest okay. number in 12 days, I think today. So I really hope that we're, we're passing that peak now. And I really hope the yeah, numbers sure. keep going down now that we've got restrictions and people are moving uh, about less and Hopefully it'll work. Yeah, I'm sure it will work because uh, that's the only thing which has proven to work. Uh, but the question is, once we release the restriction, and if you start to have number going up again, then there's a problem. So people need to follow uh, the isolation, sorry, the distance major, hygiene majors, and just do the right thing. I think that's where the behavior change needs to come in. And I think changing behavior is really hard for people. Maintaining that distancing, you know, keeping your hands clean, wearing the masks and, and not breaking mm. isolation when you've got symptoms. So if people, if people go back to their old ways after the restrictions are eased, then we, you know, end up back at square one. Which well, it raises an interesting point. And that is, do you think as soon as all of this pandemic started, we should have been wearing masks and been on the type of lockdown that we're currently in, in Victoria? I know Dr. Zia will be able to answer this better, but um, but but the problem is that the research was really evolving, and so we didn't have all the the hard facts and all the evidence right at the beginning. So the mm. World Health Organization hadn't um uh, given the recommendation um that that masks um, worn by healthy people will will reduce the spread. No um, but then we'll we'll try to smuggle in a comment from Dr. Shumela. Uh... Well, look, I mean, I agree that this behaviour change is a really really big issue. Um, I think if we think you know, about uh, like smoke alarms in houses and how they were a strange thing at the start, and now they're legislated, they may be annoying, but we, no one argues with the, the logic. Seatbelts mm. is another big one, which obviously there's parts of the world now, and a lot of us are from parts of the world where you can identify yourself as foreign because you sit in the car and reach for the seatbelt. You know, and I think this argument that you know masks are causing harm, they're causing a problem. It's like, well, we know 
and Dr. Zia would know better than us, but we know that seatbelts cause injuries. You know, I've had a, a, a nasty car accident years ago myself, and the airbag and the seatbelt cause more damage than anything else. However, if they weren't there, I may not be here right now. So, you know, we need to accept that there's going to be some, there's going to be an inconvenience, but the difference, the key difference between things like smoke alarms and seatbelts is that failing to have a smoke alarm is going to affect only your home. Failing to wear a seatbelt is going to affect you. But failing to wear masks and doing these distancing and, all, and you know, hygiene, staying at home when you're sick, it's not just about you. It's everybody around you. It's what you bring into your household. It's what then your brother takes to his workplace. It's, it's you know, we, I think our generation, you know, all generations alive now would say we are not, at least here, I don't think we are accustomed to thinking about the needs of the community ahead of our own. So I think this has been the biggest challenge. The virus is the virus, but human psychology has been the biggest battle that we've had to face this year. In regards to face masks, uh, again, I think there is a bit of conspiracy going on and, and there's a lot of people, anti-masker out there. And, and she can't... There was a rally today. That's right. That's right. To counter... Four people and, attended. <laughs> yeah, their argument. I think to counteract their argument, again, we need to put forward the facts and, and the research and the number. Uh, so to answer your question, why we didn't do this in the beginning, uh, and now we have changed our, uh, you know, thinking about that. So the reason I think why it wasn't compulsory, we, we, no one has, even CDC haven't uh, advised this, because in the beginning, the community spread wasn't that high. So if you have a community spread is not that high, then everyone wearing this mask wasn't going to prevent because you know the chances of people carrying asymptomatic carriers were very, very small. So the overall benefit wasn't there to enforce this to everybody. Now, the reason they've, they've been forcing this now because the community spread is higher. So that's one reason. And the other reason obviously is because there is enough research out there uh, looking into the droplet and aerosol uh, distance. And, and what face mask really does, it, it basically prevents others to give uh, these droplets uh, passing on to someone else. So if a person who is a carrier uh, is even speaking, so what happens just a few days prior to you have the peak viral load before you get your symptoms, you have a peak viral load a few days before. So in that situation, even if you're talking to someone next to you, you can spread that virus to that person. So having something on your face, whatever cloth or, or anything to prevent that droplet passing on to when you're talking will prevent that person getting uh, the virus. Uh, and there are studies, there are a lot of studies by now done by Chinese and, and some other, other uh, Western uh, guys also. Uh, so what they have found, obviously, there was one study looking at uh, the aeroplane. Uh, there were people, those who were wearing masks in that group, 20 people were there. None, none of them had uh, positive uh, COVID while others, they, they found that they, they spread through because one person was positive. So, so that's one, one uh, reason and, and one evidence we can put out there. Now, the next question comes to which mass is better? You know, that's again, there's a question out there. Is it the surgical mass? Is it enough? Is this the you know, cloth mass, fabric mass, whatever? Is it, is it which one is better? Now, again, there are studies done uh, looking into different types of masks and, and aerosol and, and droplet preventions. So uh, if we come down from top to bottom, you know, N N95 and respirators, they are better in preventing the infection, which is 99.5% uh, protection with N95. Then you come down, uh, you have surgical masks. Again, surgical mask does not prevent really, you know. And, and same way all these machines, paper machines does who are there about 99.5. Uh, then you, you have surgical mask and then you have fabric cloth. Now, the reason 
these three different masks have different way of protecting you is depends on the droplet size. Uh, and, and usually, you know, up to 200 micron, uh, you, you just uh, having just that fabric mask is okay. Uh, but if you want to prevent someone else, then N95 is, is basically the mask which will be useful. If suppose you are going in contact with or looking after a patient who is positive, then recommended mask is N95 because it prevents the droplet going through across uh, in, through the, that fabric and it's especially made fabric. It's very, very important for people to understand that putting that mask, whatever covering, you know, you can put a scarf that will be good enough in preventing uh, the spread, community spread. And that will be good enough actually if you compare the lockdown versus 80% of the population wearing some sort of covering, the effect will be equivalent. Mm. So you can see how important having this face covering or mask is in terms of preventing community spread. Mm. Uh, and that's the way to, to discourage these people, those who are spreading all these uh, conspiracies and anti-maskers. Yeah. Now, I've got a question for uh, our two GPs, and that is that there are members of the community, Muslim, non-Muslim, whatever the case may be, and they are obviously turning towards conspiracy theories. Their view is that the coronavirus is an exercise of power and control. Now, how would you suggest that someone be able to counter such claims if they come across them? Uh, they can go and visit an intensive care unit they like and see what it's doing. Um, I mean, the, the power and control debate is just, it's by people who don't see what this virus does. And I'm, I am just stunned that people don't see what's happening overseas. They, they didn't take lessons from, you know, the absolute panic that was going across Europe and the US in March, what happened in China before that and how they somehow think that because we're here in Australia, it's not gonna happen here, as though the virus can tell what country we're in. So, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't even know how to answer. You need to see what this disease is. No, and the control, the control and the restrictions are on all of us equally. There is no, you know, I don't know, some leader or some minister that is comfortably rolling in money as a result of this. You just have to look at, you know, Dan Andrews and, and Brett Sutton every day, see their faces. No one is, is rubbing their hands in glee. No one is enjoying this. We, we you know, at least um, maybe I can, can speak for all of us here that as doctors, I think we've lost a lot of joy in our profession because we're dealing with things that are so much more stressful that would, you know, we, I mean, you know, I certainly miss the days where I can just do preventative medicine where we can just, you know, talk about, you know, how is your child growing? And, you know, those sorts of basic things. These people were not even allowing into the clinic anymore. So, you know, if this is about power and control, you know, who's winning? Mm. It's interesting to even mention that there are even some celebrities who have jumped on this particular bandwagon. And uh, by virtue of their celebrity, they're able to influence so many other people. I mean, look and you know, give me the example of India, like the very, very famous Bachchan family all ended up infected as well. Just the same as anybody else would. Um, you know, we, oh, I'm going to forget now, is it? Who was it? Tom <laughs> I mean, Tom Hanks came down. Tom Bachchan and, and you know there are politicians dying. Even the oh, Home Minister of India has got COVID positive. I mean, we saw we saw Boris Johnson, while in power, end up in ICU. You know, he was he nearly died in front of our eyes. I don't understand what he would have gained by you know this. I don't see how anyone could say this was staged. You know, we knew at that time he was expecting a baby. So this is. You know, I don't see how people can can see and understand and accept these and still think that, you know, perhaps Bill Gates is making a lot of money as though he was poor before this. And he really, really needs the world population to thin out so he can be richer. Like it just mm. doesn't, you know, it just begs belief. So. Well, you mentioned Bill Gates. What are some of the more uh, crazier conspiracies that our, our participants have heard? Thinning out numbers of people. But apparently, you know, that's not happening anyway. I don't know. I think the biggest one is that I think Bill, they think Bill Gates has the has the vaccine or the recipe for the vaccine, and he's just waiting for um, 
waiting for the right time for the vaccine to release so he can make all this money. But but I think he's got enough money anyway, so I'm not sure what the... It's, it's very strange. <laughs> the idea is that he called Windows Windows because the, the virus can somehow enter Windows and things like that. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, very it's strange. Yeah. It makes more sense for him to put virus on, you know, computers or something like that. That'd probably be more easier for him. <laughs> He's not immune either. Do you know that this is a, the whole thing with his virus? It does not discriminate. Yeah, it's spared no one. I mean, the royal family has been expe- uh, uh, has not been exempted, and and Boris Johnson um, just looked terrible when he had the virus. His face was just pale and. Um, <laughs> I was worried that he wouldn't survive. Um, but I think one way to counter this could be just through different ways of messaging. Um, like, we, uh, speaking of celebrities, we had Bashar Huli from our community um, uh, release a video saying, you know, for, for the sake of God, get yourself tested if you have symptoms. My mom's in ICU. I think if you get personal stories like that, perhaps, um, that can um, that can help that the message sink into people. Um, mm. So I think, I think the messaging can't just be um, all negative and scaring, but it's got to be a bit... Um, been encouraging and positive as, as well. It's a good point. Find different mm. ways, whether it's podcasts like this or video, social media. And uh, the messaging, especially for Muslim community, should not be difficult. You know, if we believe in uh, Prophet, if we believe in uh, a Sunnah, then there is enough out there. We just have to, religious leader have to go out and say, this is what Prophet says. You know, if mm. you have. Uh, and you'd go the ancient Ibn Sina stories and, and, you know, you just don't have to go anywhere. Just religious leader or everyone has to say, just stick to your religion and stick to what your prophet message is. And that message is, you know, stay away. If you have plague, if you have infectious disease, communicable disease, stay away and follow the norm. So I, I think messaging, obviously, especially for people, those who are the older generation, I think using the prophet message should be the way to convince those people that. Mm. There's another uh, strong argument. Uh, uh, I think Shiraz was trying to say something. Oh, sorry. I was going to quickly say, um, adding on to Dr. Zia's um, comment that it is a real responsibility, um, but we could also um, tackle it from an an emotional level. I mean, how would you feel if you had the virus um, and you spread it to your own parents or your grandparents and, and what if they passed away? Imagine having to live with that, that thought that you're responsible for causing other people's infections or deaths. Um. Mm, yeah. There appears to be a claim that there's a pharmaceutical company that had a contract to find a cure well before the pandemic. Uh, have you come across this? Again, it's like, is it relevant? <laughs> Does it matter? Yeah. We're all in it now. It's like if someone has mm. a drug, release it, that's fine. But it's just, you know, every time there's any condition, like I've certainly had members of my own family tell me that, you know, the, the flu vaccine contains the flu because we want people to get sick because that's how we make money. Mm. I can assure you I am not making more money in this pandemic. We are all GPs. We are, we are there are many GPs on JobKeeper. We are yeah. all suffering the same. We are getting sick at higher rates than other people. So, you know, who... Whoever thinks that they are making money from this, they are themselves not immune to this virus. Mm. Yeah. 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 So in, in the case of the premier as well, it's, it's uh, amazing. You know, people are sort of blaming him from the perspective of that this man, he's always going to be keeping his job. Uh, he's, he's got a 200 plus salary of some kind. But the fact of the matter is, of course, that, you know, he's facing a lot of criticism from every side. Everyone is angry with him for either mismanaging the situation or forcing people to wear masks or, you know, forcing them into lockdown, all sorts of stuff. So it's interesting. Yeah, In I any do case, feel sorry for the, for the premier. Yeah, <laughs> personally, I'm I'm concerned for his mental health. Yeah, it is. The media asked him the other day about his welfare and, and how are you feeling? And he deflected the question and said, oh, it's not about me. It's about the, it's about keeping the community safe. He deflected, but, but you can see from his face, it's really wearing him down. And you really do, do feel sorry for people who have to make these big decisions. Yeah, I, I think we have to be careful demonizing anyone or, or blaming anyone, either it's the premier or it's the community. Uh, I mean, the reality is this virus is a bastard, basically, you know, you just, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. Uh, and you just don't know, it's such, such a thing. 
uh, I mean, we, we are blaming poor security guards, you know, those who've been paid $10 probably or not. I mean, the reality is we are spending so much money and effort educating our nursing staff, our hospital staff, and all these people. We have an extra person as a spotter who's spotting how to don and off. And in spite of that, we have got 1,000 plus healthcare worker infected. So then are we going to blame those healthcare worker for getting infection? No. Mm, mm. Uh, I think media and, and obviously everyone else have to be careful when we are demonizing the people and, and putting the blame on those poor people, those who are... Mm. Yeah, maybe they, they, they were ignorant, but still, even if, as I give example of educated people, they're getting infected, the doctors are getting infected. Those mm. people have been educated, those people know, but still, this is such a virus that, you know, you just mm. can't, if you get, you get it, you get it, you know. So I, I, I feel sorry for those people, we are just, you know, everybody is after them, rather than, I mean, they are the most vulnerable people, to be honest, in the community. Uh, and the areas where we're having most of them, it, it shows that all these people, therefore, and I think, belatedly, government has recognized this, and now they're coming up with some extra support for people, those students and other people. So these people rely, if they don't go out to work, mm. they, they can't survive, they can't live, they can't pay rent. So... Uh, and it's very important. And if you see the example in Singapore, what happened, the same thing happened in Singapore. Uh, when you have second surge in Singapore, it all happened in dormitories uh, where the people were cramped up, people were poor, people were labor. And, and in Singapore, they are more like a sort of bonded laborers, basically living in those dormitories. It's the same way happens in Saudi Arabia, where all these uh, laborers live in little dormitories. So it was easy for them to contain that. But... It's the same thing here, same thing happened. The people, those who are forced to go to different jobs, some, to be honest, they do it because they want to earn more. Uh, it's not all they are forced to do this because they need to earn their living. There are some amongst us, those who do double dipping. Now we know that, you know that. Uh, but majority of them, they just they just don't don't think anything about it. They're just doing their job and going to one job to another job. And, and that's that's the reality. Now, in my own interactions with people, one of the things I've discovered is that people are not very keen on getting a mandatory vaccine done. They're happy if there is a vaccine and some people get it done, but they're not very keen about this idea of it being mandatory. Um, so do you have any comments to offer with regards to that? Uh, yeah, so the vaccine question, obviously there are 153 groups and companies at the moment, those who are trialing and developing vaccines. And out of that, there are seven, those who are going into phase two or three trials. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure about vaccine at this stage. Uh, yes, they've got initial safety data out. So first uh, two, Moderna and Oxford, AstraZeneca, they are the two Front runner. The third one is the Sinopec, which is a Chinese company who's doing this. So all three companies have done their phase two trials. They have got safety trial. That's phase two is, and they did see immunity response, T cell response, and antibody response. Is it gonna be adequate to you know have an effect? effective sort of immunity against this virus, uh, it's too early to say. Process of developing vaccine and then, you know, having safety trials and then it takes, uh, I mean, I don't think this year we're going to see anything, although there are people talking about, but I don't think we're going to have anything before 2021, if at all. The other thing, which is in the initial trials, what we, what we are seeing uh, that one injection is not enough. So you need a booster. So that will add to complexity of already, you know, people are suspicious of their motives and then you go out and say, ah, you need to have two injections. Uh, the other problem with vaccine will be you need to have at least more than 60 
60 to 80 percent people vaccinated in order to develop that immunity in order to prevent this. Again, everybody doesn't have to have it, but then we need to have enough number of uh, people percentage-wise to have effective immunity against the virus. So I suppose we just wait and see, but it's too early. I think by next year, sometimes, uh, you know, middle of the next year or late next year, we will know a bit more once the phase three trial data come through. And I think the important thing with vaccines, it's hard for anyone to comment about a specific coronavirus vaccine when it doesn't exist yet. Um, but, you know, vaccinations have been around a long time. Mandatory vaccinations have been around for a long time. We have, you know, data coming out of our ears that show that vaccinations work. We do have the opportunity to eradicate disease. We don't need to see smallpox in Australia. We don't need to see polio in Australia. Um, you know, even measles, we've had, you know, outbreaks in, you know, you know, dare I say more affluent pockets of, um, of suburbs from time to time um, where vaccination rates have dropped. And remembering again that the whole purpose of a lot of these community-based programs is not just to protect you, it's to protect the vulnerable. But there will be people, I, you know, again, I can't comment on the coronavirus vaccine, but there are, there are members of our community who cannot be vaccinated because their immune systems cannot handle it. And part of the purpose of the rest of us being vaccinated is that they can't catch it from us. And, you know, we don't, I think people, when we talk about vaccination, we forget about some of the really serious diseases that we are already vaccinating against. Hepatitis A, hepatitis B and C, we've, oh, not C, sorry, hepatitis A and B, we've got vaccinations against. We don't want to catch these diseases. No one wants to hear about them. And, you know, we've got, you know, meningococcal is a huge one. Um, we don't, I think a lot of us, particularly in, you know, in our generation, didn't have the opportunity to witness what it looked like before we could vaccinate against common things like strep pneumonia or haemophilus. We haven't had to see children coming into our, you know, into our departments with things like epiglottitis, like to see what it looks like for a child to struggle to breathe. Um, you know, we haven't had we haven't had to deal with these things. So when there's all this mistrust on on vaccinations, it's not often from the people who are dealing with them, who are treating people who are unwell, who are seeing these diseases. If you haven't seen smallpox, you're not going to understand why we, we had to have a vaccine against it. So I think it comes down to trust and mistrust again, but I think there's got to be something to be said about trusting the people who work in it all the time. I don't second guess my mechanic because I don't understand a thing about how my car works. So if he says something has to be done, I just do it. And if I don't do it, it's going to be me that suffers. So I don't see why um, this principle can't be applied. You know, if there was an economic crisis and people saying, well, this, you know, we need to, you know, change banking rules or change lending rules. We had this a few years ago. We, we didn't argue. We did it and we came out of that crisis. So I think there's a lot of fear happening now, but I think we just need to boil it back down to what this is. This is a health crisis. We need to listen to the health experts on what needs to happen next. Part of me thinks that perhaps due to this issue of powerlessness that people have within the midst of this entire situation, they try to make sense of it using conspiracy theories, using and trying to understand that someone else is perhaps has an ulterior motive or something of the like. To some level, that's even been demonstrated with this uh, protest which occurred, which had four or five people in the city, in the CBD. It seems to be a growing movement of anti-maskers, as they call them. Do you think that there is actually something more to this particular movement than what we've just described? Do you, do you have any thoughts regarding it? Today, it's a mask. You know, there's always been something that there's, if people, like exactly as you, as you rightly said, when there's a sense of disempowerment um, or a sense of loss, people are going to grieve. And people, and we know we are all grieving loss of our freedom. We, we are all missing aspects of our lives that we don't have access to anymore. And I guess anger is, is not an uncommon emotion. Distrust, disbelief is not uncommon. And so I think we just have to remember, though, if we are, for those who, who disagree, we're wrong. And we have to know where does our knowledge come from to have to go against the experts. If we're wrong, the consequence might not be for you, but it's going to be for the person who can't fight this virus. Is that we're going to end up with, you know, we were already witnessing, you know, an near wipeout in our aged care systems. You know, these are not old, decrepit, demented people who, who don't have any 
quality of life left. You know, these are people who are, you know, active, engaged, they are enjoying their lives, they have families who love them, who want to come and, you know, they can't even see them. Some, many of these people are dying alone. They can't even see the faces of their doctors and their nurses who are treating them. So if we mm. make mistakes with this, and if we get massive movements of people who, are, who don't want to wear masks because it's their civil liberties, you know, as Dr. Zia would say, your civil liberties go out the window. If someone's trying to put a, a tube in your mouth, trying to help you breathe. So we need to remember what what it is we're dealing with, and rather than fighting each other, we need to be fighting this beast. I think that statement needs to go on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts, Dr. Shiraz? Uh, we, we got we're we should be wrapping up very soon. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with everyone? Um, I think just speaking about masks and vaccines and things, I think it just comes back down to, to messaging um, that we need to keep educating our community and encouraging everybody. Um, these restrictions are very hard. They're very restrictive. Um, and I've personally found them hard just being at home. There's not much to do besides going to work and coming back home. So it, it's not easy. We're all in this together. But if we all play our part um, and take our responsibility, then hopefully we can, we can get through this lockdown. If we flout the rules and if the, if the infection continues to rise, then there'll be more restrictions um, and, and less freedom. So if we if we just all uh, get onto the bandwagon and hopefully just do the right thing, mm. then, we, then we can get through this. Mm. It's going to take a unified approach. It's, it's not easy. Um, and we just need to continue um, encouraging each, each other. It, it's a difficult time. Um, I definitely acknowledge that. It's not just about the virus, but just the entire livelihoods. We spoke about the economic effects, loss of job, the mental health. Um, all of that. So we're all mixed together, but inshallah. We'll Dr. Zia, it. final words? Uh, look, I, w- I would like to say that, uh, you know, we should look after each other. Um, it's very, very important at individual family level. We make sure that we're looking after each other. As a community, we need to go out and, and help people, those who need help. And my, I, I strongly suggest that people follow face covering of face masks. Uh, because, as I said, there is a data out there which has compared the you know value of face covering and, and lockdown equivalent. So if we can do that, then lockdown will go away and we will all get our life back. Wonderful. Dr. Shmaila, final words? I think you're the last person, so it needs to be very profound. Oh, okay. okay. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think the big... I feel this virus is very, very, very personal to me, being a healthcare worker. You know, we don't get the opportunity to stay at home. I don't get to sit out. I don't get to, you know, just sit at home on my laptop and, and, and you know, miss the friendly environment of my, my workplace. You know, I have a family to come home to. There's people who rely on me and people who rely on my income. I don't want to get sick. You know, I don't want to end up in ICU and there is no guarantee that you know, you know, my, my age or any other health factors is going to keep me safe. We saw two people in their thirties die this week. So I think if and if we get sick, we are not easily replaced. I know that sounds a bit, you know, perhaps a bit conceited, but you lose you lose nursing home staff, you lose the staff of the 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 aged care workers who know your parents best. You cannot replace them with, you know, someone who's been imported from somewhere else who doesn't know your mum from anybody else. So keep safe for each other. And as on person, I keep safe for us. If you don't wear your mask to work, it's going to make me sick. If you don't follow the advice, if you do not isolate and we are shopping and I touch the same thing you've touched, you cough in my face, you're not wearing a mask, it's going to make me sick. We need to, we need to follow the rules. We need to be in this together. And we need to think about what consequences our actions are going to have on our broader community. Thank you very much to everyone. That was very, uh, that was very nice. Jazakallah uh, khair. It was very profound. Yeah, I think it hit the spot for uh, not just us, but inshallah the listeners as well. So I thank you all once again for joining us. Uh, I think this is probably my longest recording so far, but I think it was worth it. So since we've got, uh, mashallah, three very professional and qualified individuals, it's, I think it's worth it. And uh, I'm sure people will benefit inshallah. So thank you once again to everyone. Thank you. Thank you.